Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Lit Service, where we are fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. I'm Cameron, and if I was a ghost, I would be the kind that follows paleontologists around in a vain hope of encountering dinosaur ghosts. Hmm. That totally tracks. <laughs> um, I'm Kristen, and if I was a ghost, I would want to be the kind that has like really wet hair and is sort of dripping and looks like I might be haunting a well and... Yeah sort of like follows you and makes the walls go wet just because that's super creepy. I think if I, Oh, sorry. I'm Caitlin. (laughs) And if I were a ghost, I would definitely be like the moaning myrtle variety that just annoys people like preferably in the bathroom. (laughs) Um, I just feel like you can't ever forget her and her little squeaky voice from the movie. And that's just what I would, I would love to be. So as you can almost definitely tell from our extremely apt introduction question, this week we are talking about tone. <laughs> Wait, Do I send sarcasm? Yeah, me? maybe just a little bit. What really happened is a lot of us have been reading Lockwood lately, so we just kind of threw it in there. Uh, so, but, but back to, but, but tone, but tone. So what is tone? Um, I think it's the way the story comes across, like the feel of the the general feeling it gives you rather than what the words say. Yeah, I guess I guess one way to think about it would, like when you're speaking, you have a tone of voice that tells people how to interpret what you're saying and your writing does the exact same thing, but you have to use your word choice to build it instead of like the pitch of, of your actual words. Mm-hmm. But I think it, it does the same thing. It's like the background music in a movie. It tells you how you're supposed to feel about what is happening in the movie. <laughs> that's That's a really good point. <laughs> Yeah, I had I had trouble coming up with like any kind of a succinct definition. I just had like examples, you know, things can have a dark tone or a light tone. It could be humorous or hopeful or despairing. It could be wholesome or irreverent. I actually did an exercise on this for I think it was for Teen Author Bootcamp or something. I can't remember what it was, but um, I showed two movie clips that have pretty much the same thing happening in both of them. But the tones are significantly different. One of them was from Iron Man, where you have, you know, Iron Man with the the ACDC. I think it's ACDC that plays. And, like, he's all dressed up and they're in a tank. And he's, like, joking around with people. And then the tank gets blown up. You know, Iron Man. And, and then I showed the beginning of Dunkirk, which almost oh, yeah. the exact same thing happens. There's no tank, but there are people walking, like soldiers who are together, who are scared of an enemy who's coming. And anyway, like a lot of, there are a lot of beats that are the same in both, but based on the sounds and the camera angles and all of that, you can tell that they're very, very different movies. And with tone in, in a book, you do the same thing with your words as, as movies do with all of those sounds and all of those cues. You, you tell the person that, who is reading your book what to expect through the language and like the the structure that you use. Yeah, tone is a way of making a promise to your reader, actually. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I hadn't really thought about it that way. But if you have something that's, that's a if you have something that's extremely comedic and irreverent, and then at the very end of it you try to like pitch this very serious life lesson fable, here's how you should see the world, something, it's gonna fall extremely flat because no one who's still around was here for that. Yeah. Well, I mean, at the same time, you can still like be thoughtful in a comedic book, but you just can't well, always expect your readers to take you seriously. Or, you know, I mean, there 
your character has to be in a place where they're able to think or like you can't switch things up and like uh and yo-yo from tone to tone based on how you feel about each different scene I mean there can be changes in tone but an overall feeling to a book like you're either going to be scared through most of a book or like like Cameron was saying there's dark and light and comedic and silly and how serious should I take this versus this is like a really strong life lesson I should be listening to like you can't go back and forth between those as you write I think this is this is one of those places where that that purveyors of dodging writing advice comes in because I think especially yeah. with tone, a lot of the rules about tone are made to be broken, but they need to be broken deliberately. Like I think a lot of a lot of my favorite media has extremely contrasting tone, hmm. um, has multiple ones going on. So like, we're gonna throw a quarter in the last Airbender jar for the day, but like a lot of that show is extremely silly. And then you have like serious parental abuse, genocide. <laughs> it gets, it's, it's hard to get heavier than some of the subject matter Last Airbender deals with, but it works. Well, I think that actually The Last Airbender works specifically because of its tone, because that series mm-hmm. is made for children. It's made for, and my kids are watching it right now. As we are recording, and my youngest is four years old, and she can watch it without being scared. Or, I mean, there are probably some parts that are a little scary, but um, it's because of the tone that you can approach all of those really heavy subjects to smaller children without them feeling the heaviness of them. You can have subjects like that in a middle grade book or in a, a younger, for a younger audience, depending on how you approach them. So, as an adult, if I watch, or actually, another example is I just watched um, Frozen 2 recently with my children. Mm. And they're all like, the songs, the music, the little fire spirit. And I was like in tears the whole time. So like it affected us differently because I had greater context for what was happening in the movie. Like I seriously bawled my way through that movie. I'm sorry. Everybody here knows that I cry very easily. I'm very easily emotionally manipulated by media. <laughs> So my kids were like having fun and it's awesome and singing and fun. But as an adult, I had context for what was happening. And so all of the emotional impact of what they were saying and doing really hit me. So things that can do that are just like gold. I don't really want to argue with anyone about whether they like Frozen 2 or not, though. So don't <laughs> at me. <laughs> well, I might, I might throw the slightly harder question at you. So you just described a really cool thing that you claim Frozen 2 did. I want to ask you how they did it. Well, with Frozen 2... I feel like that's a similar, it's similar to Avatar where you have, I don't know if you guys have seen Frozen 2. Have either of you seen Frozen 2? Can we have a real discussion about Frozen 2? I have seen Frozen 2, but I did not fall my way through it. So I'm really interested to know your take on it. Okay, well, I had maybe just had a falling out with my sister right before I watched it. So there's maybe some Ah. context here, but I'm not the only person who, well, and also I am a parent. And so watching a movie about... (laughs) two girls whose parents have died, like finally finding their mother and like being able to connect with them, like hit me pretty hard. So yeah, yeah. I mean, you come at things differently at different times in life. Like have any of you guys ever seen Dear Frankie, the movie? It's a lovely uh, movie. We're talking I all about it. movies instead of books. It's about a woman whose son is deaf. <laughs> and um, the first time I watch it, well, what happens is the, the mother is essentially hiding from her abusive husband and has been moving this way and that with her son and is pretending to write letters to him from his dad saying he's on a ship so that her son won't wonder where his dad is. And then one day the ship that her dad, the dad is supposed to be on 
like moors where they are. And so her son thinks that the dad is in the ship. So she pays somebody to pretend that he's the son's dad. Anyway. Oh my gosh. That was, yeah, it's pretty heavy stuff. That would have me in tears. <laughs> well, the first time I watched it, I thought it was a romance because I was like 18 and I was like, oh, it's so sweet. And this man is being so nice to the son and the two fall in love. But that's totally not what happens. As, when I watched it as an adult, I was like, oh, oh, this is very different than I thought it was. So things yeah. can change based on where you are in life too. It's a very good movie and I like it a lot. So if you guys feel like seeing something that's fun go for it and everybody has really strong scottish accents i had to watch it with subtitles incredible Gerard butler with his real accent oh, super fun really? yeah, yeah oh that sounds great anyway so going back to the question which is how do you accomplish really difficult subjects in a way that is jokey enough that people don't feel like they are drowning i think that the key there is using i mean in, in middle grade a lot of times humor is used to temper subjects like that the, the words you use make a really big difference as to how the, the reader feels about what's happening. Like if you're describing, say, uh, a ghost scene where there's a ghost in the room and it could potentially be very scary or very silly or very funny, the words you use to describe how the characters are feeling, the things that they hear, the things that they taste and see. Like if you start with like there's like a high-pitched tone and everybody has prickles down their necks and it's dark and they can't see and the ghost has like blacked out eyes. I mean, if you use words like uh, bloody and cunning and cold and like if, if the feelings that you evoke are feelings that are going to frighten your readers, it will be frightening. Whereas if you take a more Harry Potter sort of approach to things where the ghosts are all a little bit hokey and Peeves is like throwing ink at people and and it's all very it's described in a very silly way, and the way Harry reacts to things is quite silly. You know that you don't need to be that concerned about it. At least in the earlier books. Yeah. Well, there aren't really any ghost encounters that are very scary in any of the Harry Potter books, I don't think. I mean, Peeves is a little worrisome throughout, but he's always kind of like the poltergeist that could almost kill somebody but never actually does because it's a middle grade book so well, but like it doesn't have to be a ghost to be scary though like i feel by the time you get to the end of goblet of fire the gloves are off oh absolutely yeah the tone changes significantly in those books what you said about how the point of view character or the characters respond to it i think that's actually the most important thing because in the case of harry potter anyway in the first book like, Harry's parents are dead, and he's being raised by an abusive aunt and uncle. Heavy and stuff, right? They have, to, they have to get through, like, this crazy maze of puzzles to stop Voldemort from from coming. And um, it it's pretty, it, like, it would be heavy stuff if Harry, as an 11-year-old, knew how to process any of it. And once you start getting the processing in there in the later books in, like, 4 and 5 and 6 and 7, that's when it starts getting serious because the characters are telling us how to react to what's there. So I think tone is totally built from, from character belief and from point of view. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what makes the difference. I had this, I've probably said this on the podcast before, and I think Cameron was with me at this. Uh, it was a panel or no, it was a presentation about the difference between comedy and horror. And yeah, oh, I was you were there. there that was LTUE. All of us were there. Yeah. And he said the difference between comedy and horror is When you watch someone fall down a hill in comedy, you can see them falling from far away and they bump, 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 ah, bump, and then you can't see them anymore. And then if it's horror, then it's up close and you hear bones crunching and you are part of it. You are falling with them. You're feeling all the pain along with them. And I think that your tone um, and how close you are to characters and how much you feel their reactions and how much 
what they do is what's going to tell you how you're supposed to feel about what's going on. It could be the exact same scene, but you put your character, your reader in a different place and it looks very different. Let's touch on one more point before we move on then. So how do you walk? So let's talk about YA specifically. How do you walk the line between having something be emotionally relatable for that audience without being overly grotesque? Overly grotesque. I think it's really important not to pull punches when you write, to be honest. Like, I was talking to Tay Keller a little while ago. Um, her new book that just came out at the, the beginning of the year, she was a guest on the on the podcast right after the book came out. So if you haven't read it yet, When You Trap a Tiger by Tay Keller. It was long listed for Newberry, so it's a really good book. She was telling me her new her first book, The Science of Breakable Things, has a girl who's dealing with a parent who has really severe depression who thinks that if she does X, Y, Z, then her parent will feel better and that everything will go back to normal. And it involves this kid doing some pretty extreme things that when Tay first wrote it, she said, I didn't pull, I pulled all those punches. I think it's the same in, she writes middle grade. It's the same in YA though. I'm writing a book right now that's dealing with like sexual assault and like violence and families family members dying and grief and a bunch of other stuff but it's also got like a lot of fun heisty people banding together and happy fun stuff or and also like religion and rejection based on like having different beliefs and like it's a lot of really heavy stuff but when I'm writing I'm not trying to pull back on characters emotions at all actually because I feel like doing that feels disingenuous to me but I also am not putting characters in situations where they can't get out of them because YA, you leave the light on at the end and you allow them to get through it. And so I guess just based on on what you want the ending to look like, this is probably debating from tone a whole lot. So I don't know. That makes everybody really excited to read my book. It sounds terrible right now. <laughs> um, it's actually quite fun. <laughs> but there, there are real things we in it. it. So we've we read like it. It's it. good. I think... I think not pulling punches is really important. And I think it's worth remembering that life is a mixture of really scary, really bad, really awful things and lighthearted, funny, great moments. And I think books, the books that I have read, like middle grade or YA, that handle the serious stuff in the most lasting way, for me anyway, they have both sides of that like they tell the truth not just part of the truth they they show you the funny stuff and they show you the hard stuff and they show you the characters dealing with the hard stuff mm -hmm. one middle grade novel I think that does this really well is Summer Lost by Ali Condi mm -hmm. which is I mean the tone of the book is, is literally in the name like you have this like fun summer sort of vibe but you also have this horrible aching yearning side um because this main character her her brother and her dad have been killed in a car accident and it's her sort of dealing with that but also making friends during like a big Shakespeare festival and it is a really great book but and Cedar the main character has some great things happen to her and she has some horrible things happen to her and she has to deal with all of it and the tone delivers on that the word choice and and Cedar's thoughts and all of her actions, they all build together to give you that promise of something that's beautiful, but that hurts a little bit because it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Another book that does this really well, I think, is um, The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas. Because oh, yeah. it is so like voicey and funny and silly and awful 
at the same time because you have a character who is a real person who's just trying to live day to day who just saw her friend get murdered. And so, I mean, she does such a good job of making the characters real and react in real ways and not flooding. Like anytime you write a book, you can't have a character feel the same way through the whole thing or it will feel like it's all one color and like there are no dynamics and it won't feel real because nobody ever is like that. You have moments of humor, you have moments of of positive, you have moments of depression and and your books should definitely reflect that. See, I'm totally countering everything I said before. I think a book should have an overarching tone where like I could pick up Lockwood and Co and say this is going to be funny but it's also too scary for my 11-year-old. You know, so I know consistently what to expect from the book, but that doesn't mean every scene feels the same. If that makes sense. I generally know there are going to be scary ghosts and silly jokes and, and underwear on the floor, not in a bad way, but in a, I'm embarrassed somebody saw my underwear on the floor sort of way. <laughs> Excellent. All right. So we are moving on to the second half of our podcast where we critique a reader submission. A quick reminder, we try to be non-prescriptive, which means when we're looking at stuff that could need more work, we're going to avoid suggesting how to fix it. Um, if you'd like to check out the text of this submission and see all of our notes, check on our website, which is litservicepodcast.wixit.com slash litnation. Honestly, just Google litservice. That's faster. If you would like a first chapter critique from us, you can find our submission guidelines there. So, quick summary. Neela, a witch in England in the 1600s, has a chat with the son of the man responsible for her mother's execution, who genuinely wants to marry her. Ooh. Wait, wait, no, no you have to no, do that no, the no, right it's, way. It's, it's ooh. <laughs> yeah, there we go. So what are some things that we liked? So I think uh, one thing that stood out to me is that this author uses really strong verbs and nouns um, instead of relying on weaker adjectives and adverbs, which sounds sort of like a boring thing to praise, but is honestly a really great thing to praise because that's like one of the first things someone editing is going to look for. And I think this author does a really good job about that. I think the concept is really fun. You have like real witches during witch hunter era yeah who are i think that's awesome and um like her mother was killed and like i'm really the concept is cool so i think part of what makes it works is that there's some excellent time place detail drops we get that you know charles is the current king we get that well charles was just beheaded it sounds like yeah same difference. We get that <laughs> Suter Boy <laughs> is is a Puritan, and we you know, and we get that this is happening in England, and we get all of that without any info dumps. Yeah, it's a good job of setting a stage that feels familiar, even though I know very little about this time period in England. There's uh, some really nice character moments and and sort of individual distinctions, I guess, throughout here. Like, there's a moment where Neela is talking about Abel and who's who's the guy who got her mother killed and she's like I don't hate him but I really resent how weak he is and I thought that was deliciously nuanced and seemed like I'd be making a nice promise for future parts of this book I think Caitlin will want to talk more about this later but I also really (laughs) like there's an implication that well it's not an implication it's outright stated that so Rafe is is asking to marry Neela, and Neela's like, no, I don't really think you thought this through because my dad married a witch, and he has resented that his whole life, and he's resented the people who killed her, and he's resented her, and it just didn't work out, and I'm pretty sure the same thing will happen to you. Um, and I thought that was some nice, I guess, outward and forward thinking from Neela, and 
told me a lot about what was happening in their town. Although I also want to come back to it because it, it left me with some questions as well. Well, maybe that's a good segue into things that might need a second look. So my only thought about this was the way that it was stated. There's so much more than one thought here. i mean i i actually really like that idea of of neela being like do you really want this because if you do look what you're looking forward to but that's not really the way she says it she says it in a much more like i really like you and i don't want that to be your life but it is her life and as a teenager i wasn't really thoughtful about other people apparently because i think if i was madly in love with this kid I would probably think, oh, he sees all this and he still loves me rather than I'm not going to let you do this or I don't even want to do this. You know, like I, what Kristen took from that section of the book, I didn't. I just saw her as a character who was kind of like wishy-washy and like pushing him this way in that way and saying, I'm not going to marry you outright. Or she wasn't outright not saying that. She wasn't outright saying that. But it felt more like I don't really believe this kid likes me rather than I'm not going to have this happen to another family. And so it came out a little bit Mary Sue, like there's a – no, not Mary Sue. It came out a little bit like um, like a wall in a relationship that I can see over rather than a wall in a relationship where it's solid and I'm really excited to see how the characters are going to get around it, if this is a romance, which it might not be. And actually that's that's where my issue is because like – Caitlin mentioned that when she was a teenager, if she was madly in love with a person, she wouldn't have thought that. But I actually have no idea if Neela is in love with with Rafe by the end of this. Just, I felt like I didn't really know her. We get some heart pitter-pattering. Yeah, we do. But it's it's not quite the same. Like, she never outright states how she feels about him. Or I, I guess I just didn't know where this book was going. Because we have so many elements. We've got this historical thing that that's going really strong. And we have some actual magic so we're in a fantasy because Neela's is a witch and and can do real witchy things but then there's also maybe this romance and i guess i wasn't sure if primarily the story would lead us down that romance with rafe or with a different person or if we'd focus on the fantasy and she'd have to do something witchy and save england or if it'd be historical and she'd just have to keep the witchy part as a side plot um, and I'm sure based on like a query letter or a blurb or something, that would be clear. But from the first chapter, I just, I wasn't sure what my roadmap was telling me. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, and you can have all of those things in a book, oh, but yeah. knowing which story is the A plot is really important because those are the the ideas that you're going to be putting forward the farthest in your first chapter yeah. so that you can make promises about what the big, huge climax is going to be later. Exactly. Because if it's going to be kissing a boy, that's very different than like if zombies come out and she has to fight them with her witch powers. Yeah. So. And I think I love the setup of there being magic in this time that was really against witches. But um, we don't actually get any hints of real magic in this world until page three. And since Neela's a witch and her mom was hanged for like a real bit of magic and she's not just like a convenient scapegoat, it I, I sort of felt like it should affect the way we read everything that happens here. And for me, I had a hard time sort of reconciling this big world-shaking, world-changing fact of there being real magic with the fact that it's not really mentioned, it's not really important, it doesn't seem to come up often or in detail. And Magic seems to be a hanging offense, but Rafe does not seem to care. And if Neela's a known witch, which she is because Rafe knows and everyone knows that her mom was a witch, I just, 
It's why is she not being actively persecuted? I felt like it left me with more questions than it answered. I agree. Which, I mean, also, if if the part of the story that's like the A-plot exciting stuff is witchiness and magic, I would love to see that. I mean, we have ample opportunity. You know, this is actually one of my other things that I wanted to talk about. There is a lot of telling in this first mm-hmm. chapter. There's so much really cool stuff happening. I mean, they talk about Cromwell and they talk about witches and her mother dying and and this tree that she was anonymously sent that's going to have berries soon, which sounds very, I mean, like creepy and cool slash I'm not really sure what to think of it yet. But instead of seeing those things happen or like her her father is a drunk mm-hmm. and not very nice too. And there's also a, an issue of like um, social imbalance between her and Rafe. That seems to be the thing that she focuses on the most. But in, instead of having – instead of seeing the dad be a drunk and seeing the tree, it's just a conversation that happens in a little garden and it doesn't move at all, which I mean is okay. But I feel like for a first chapter especially, it makes it feel really slow. And that's actually one of the things I always tell people need to be in a first chapter. You need movement. You need character, like stakes and motivation and stuff, even if we don't know what the inciting incident is going to be. But movement is really important because it shows us how people in your world interact with the other people in your world, which tells us a whole lot more than they can tell us themselves. I was thinking of World War Z and like Brad Pitt's mantra that movement is life. And I just think it, uh-huh. it really <laughs> applies to literature. <laughs> I can't watch World War Z because zombies scare me. <laughs> so funny. You have a whole series about zombies, but we're not going to argue this here. <laughs> no, it's different. It's different. Okay. It's not. It's so not different. I kind of had a similar thought. It's, if you break down kind of what's happening in this scene, there's, there's sort of two main points. There's, I want to marry you. And then there's background information that explains their relationship up to this point. And the problem is that they're kind at least to me, they kind of felt they're in equal parts, which is an issue because since it's all a conversation, they spend a lot of time talking about stuff that it feels like they should have already talked about. Yeah. It's rehashing. They have also like, especially, so they get there and they're talking and they're flirting and it's all cute. And then at some, at one point um, his dad comes up and all of a sudden it's this heated, your dad executed my mother. Mm. which is a real emotional thing, but it feels like it's a real emotional thing that should have happened, you know, when his dad executed his mother, not however many months or years later this is. Mm-hmm. Unless it's like a, a reoccurring argument between them. It wasn't. If that's the case, it wasn't lampshaded as such. I was a little bit confused about why he was there because it talks about him showing up with a basket of goods and that he's sneaking away from the house, and she, but, it, but it's because his dad has gout. And then it's mentioned that she, like, makes potions for people or healing stuff or herbs or whatever. And then he gives her the basket. And so I assumed at first that he had run away from home and his dad was distracted from, by his gout. And that's why he was able to get away. But then because of the basket, it was like, oh, no, he's paying her for a potion to heal his dad. Mm-hmm. And then she didn't actually give him any potion or whatever and seemed to think it was charity so I was never actually sure why he was there. And I was also wondering if it was really awkward to get a basket full of food from a boy that you liked. She did not seem faced by it. But I, at 18, would have been, personally. Well, I mean, it's not like they can go to a restaurant. I know, but I mean, if you are incapable of buying your own food. Oh, okay, sure. I mean, it kind of fades into that whole thing where I don't really understand what her socioeconomic status 
as the child of a witch is. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's, mm-hmm. as we've discussed, it's kind of an implication that's just absent. That feels like it would be important. So there's one other thing I wanted to bring up, and that is the language, which actually could probably point to a lot of things that I struggled with in this. Okay, so if we're in a really super historical type book where accuracy is the name of the game, that's great. Um, We've got really old-timey methinks and alacs and, you know, all that kind of stuff, both in the dialogue and in, like, the the navel-gazy internal stuff. Mm -hmm. So for a YA book which I'm pretty sure this is, it's kind of a rough read to have to wade through all of that. It could be just me being a lazy reader, but I I just think for the age group, unless you're with really diehard historical readers who eat that stuff up, it's a little bit of a hard thing to wade through. Yeah, I, I will second that with the caveat that I don't read a ton of historical fiction that I don't either. um, So yeah, at least not historical fiction this far back. But the ones I have read are not normally quite so dedicated to the Shakespearean sound of English, mm-hmm. and especially not among among YA books that have come out recently. And I guess for me, part of the, part of the issue is that the amount of effort that I had to put into, I guess, sort of untangling their jokes took away from the funniness of the jokes or like the emotional tie that I felt as a reader to the scene. So it's just something to consider, I guess, what you as a reader, as an author, are hoping that the language will do for the reader. And if you think it's worth the payoff of maybe having some of your readers, like myself, struggle with it. Well, I mean, there are books that pull it there off are, for sure. Absolutely. I, I don't know that I've seen one that's quite this dense mm-hmm. before. Like the Glamorous Histories, totally Jane Austen it up. But I personally, and this is me just being honest I have a hard time reading them because I'm like you are not from this era and it annoys me that you're trying to pretend that you are where it doesn't bother me so much with Jane Austen because I was like no you really talked like this so that's just a personal preference on my part and I think that people argue about that over I mean like if you read um chaos walking people argued over the the way that that was written a lot and I love it but I just I feel like if that's really important to this book, then it might be good to just read some other books that do it so you can kind of get a a good idea for balance. Yeah. And know that it will always cause problems with at least some people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess I guess the one thing I would say then I assume since you're writing historical that you'll also read quite a lot of historical, so I would just recommend reading a lot of recent historical YA and I guess see what is currently being done and what's if there's something worth mimicking or something worth improving upon in what's already being done. Well, and also on the other side of that, if this is not a book that is going to be focusing strictly on history, it's not like historical fantasy, but rather like fantasy that's set in like an alternate history type of Mm -hmm. thing. Like that is also something that you could be pointing to based on the language that you're using. That's true. So if, if the history is what is going to be highlighted here, then that probably is something that might like creep into the the dialogue at least. But um, if it's not, then that might be something to think about whether or not you want to throw that at fantasy readers yeah, because different kinds of readers are going to be patient with different kinds of things. Yeah, and I'm thinking of like Gentleman's Guide to Vice and Virtue, which is sort of like a – it's not really an alternate history, but it's certainly not strictly historical. It's got fantasy or um, Dread Nation, which is straight up alternate fantasy I, I think there are lots of ways that you can get the historicity about a cross without necessarily having to fall into globe theater dialogue all right if that's everything we are very over so 
thanks you very much to this author for submitting. Um, our next episode will be with Tracy Dion, the author of Legendborn, her debut novel that releases in September. She also contributed to Our Voices, Our Stories anthology and The Empire Strikes Back from a Certain Point of View anthology. If you'd like our first chapter critique from Tracy, get us your work by August 27th. And we're going to put a big plug-in for our Patreon here. We're trying to expand the number and quality of episodes that we make and create opportunities for more people to get their work critiqued. If you're interested in supporting us, go ahead and check us out there. It would be fantastic. Thanks to well, our... Well, actually, quick plug for Cameron. He's actually hosting a writing group where you can meet with Cameron and with other people who are a part of it, and you can have your work critiqued live. It's kind of Without, awesome. like, any of the, the extra sadness that people get when they don't get their work picked. I'm not saying this the right way. But anyway, it's it's monthly... It's not recorded. It's a live Zoom meeting where you can just talk and ask questions and everything else. And two people will get to do that every month, but everybody will get like a hot seat critique from Cameron who participates in that. So you have guaranteed like chapter by chapter if you stay – stick it out or stick with the, the writing group of your book from Cameron. And probably some of us will participate sometimes as well. So uh, Thanks to our intern, Lindsay Owens who does the social media, because we all bad. If you'd like to ask us questions, tell us we're awesome, or why not how your writing is going, you can find us on social media or email us at litservicepodcast at gmail.com. Please remember to like, share, and review the podcast. It helps us grow. Uh, for Lit Service, thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks.